0: We haven't met yet. My name is Jim Midget. I'm one of the associate pastors here. You can see my face for a little while because our other two pastors feel like they needed a break. So they're going to be gone for a bit. You're stuck with me. That's just the way it's going to work. I grew up in Alberta and there was a camp out there called Pine Lake Christian Camp. Uh, do you, did you ever go to church camp when you were a little, little kid or when you were a teen or anything like that? I remember one night we were around the campfire and at our camp, you know, the campfires were all the really spiritual stuff happening. Um, and I remember one time we were, we were worshiping, we were actually singing that song. And a bunch of people were, you know, they had their hands up, they were clearly in a moment, and they were clearly worshiping with everything that they had. And then this one kid, I remember not liking him very much. Uh, I was standing there, you know, kind of singing the song, kind of trying to understand where we were and what we were doing. And this kid kind of like muscled his way to the front in front of everybody and just kind of looked around back and forth. And then he closed his eyes and put up his hands and started singing louder than everybody else. And I watched this and I was thinking, you know, I don't think he quite gets what this song is about. I don't think he really understood what what the words really meant. And I don't think he really understood what, what worship was. You see, last week, if you were here, we were talking about how intensely God takes worship, how, how deeply He craves intimacy with us, how much He desires for our worship to be authentic, how much He desires for us to come and to know Him better, and to be transformed to be more like Christ through how we worship. We discovered last week that the way we worship outside of here affects the way we worship inside of And that what we do out there really, truly matters. Well, people were starting to understand this in the early church. Way, way back, when the church was just first starting out, people were coming to know Christ in droves. They were learning about Him. They were understanding Him. They were dedicating themselves to Him. They were getting baptized. They were worshiping Him. And the crowds were growing so much. There was so much attention being given to Christ that the Jewish leadership was becoming very concerned. Whether they feared the rebellion, or they just simply feared the loss of power, or whatever their motivation was, they decided that Christians needed to be stamped out. They had had enough of these Christians gathering together. And so they began open violence against Christians. And they they were persecuting them. If you want to understand what violence against Christians looks like, you don't have to look very hard. We see it in the news all the time today. And this violence was opened up against Christians, and so Christians went underground, sometimes literally, sometimes into to homes, into smaller gatherings. And believe it or not, the most wonderful thing always happens to Christianity when people violently oppose it. It started to spread. You know, the, the Jewish leadership, they wanted to stamp Christianity out completely. They wanted to snuff out that flame, but instead of snuffing it out, they fanned it into a wildfire. And Christians started spreading out all over the Roman Empire to start spreading the news of Christ. And it started opening up. At first they were going into the synagogues and they were going into the the Jewish churches of the time. And they were going there to preach Jesus. But before long, people who weren't Jewish in origin started coming to know Jesus as well. And this actually created a bit of a problem for the church. Because being Jewish in those days was as much a cultural identity as it was a religious one. It was like a racial identity. Just as it is today, people identify themselves as Jewish. And so Jewish people, knowing their law very well, and knowing that they're not supposed to associate with non-Jews, otherwise they could be unclean, had a problem when they started worshipping Jesus with people who weren't Jewish to start with. And even people within the church were getting neglected. And so, so there's these widows that were, were Greeks, Whether or not they were actually physically Greek, I'm not sure. But Greek was a word they used for anybody who wasn't Jewish. And so these Greek women were being neglected in the church. And so the the apostles came together and said, you know what we need to do? We need to help these women out. And so they they appointed seven guys who could go in and help these, these women out. And appointed them as heads of the ministry to the Greeks. One of those people's name was Philip. Philip is a Greek name. Philip was one of the apostles. Philip was a wonderful man. And he was serving the Greek people in the church. Now, the head of that ministry was killed because of this persecution. So, Philip seems to have taken over the ministry to the Greeks. And so, Philip headed up away from Jerusalem, way up north to a city called Samaria. Now, if you've been with us for the last few months, we've been reading through the story. We took a break on that for the summer. But in the story, we've learned that when the Israelites were all destroyed, when Jerusalem was captured and people were carried off into exile, the city of Samaria became the capital of the region. It became a political power center. And it was a place where all kinds of religious influences and political power came and stayed. And so the Jewish people that were there they started adopting all kinds of other religious practices that built into traditions that were there. They had no access to the temple down in Jerusalem, so they started worshipping on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. And they, they adopted different practices from all these other religions. And when the Jews eventually came back and started rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple, all kinds of animosities were there between those two people groups. There was jealousy, there was fear of loss of power, there was all that kind of stuff happening. And later on, there was even a group of Jews in Jerusalem a few hundred years later that split away from the regular, normal, practicing Jews, and they went moved up to Samaria and started their own version of Judaism up there, even building a temple on Mount Gerizim. And so a lot of Samaritans weren't sure what to do, and they started worshipping God as one of many gods. The average Samaritan didn't know that God was God and God alone and that none of these other things were real. So you can imagine the Jewish Christians at the time, those who had just converted from Judaism, did not like and did not want to go to Samaria. And so who was the best person to go to Samaria? The guy in charge of teaching the Greeks. And so Philip heads up there. Now, Philip starts preaching and teaching. He starts proclaiming the name of Jesus. And at first, the crowds are very small, but as he does it, and as people come to know who Jesus is, the crowds begin to grow and grow and grow. And just as Jesus had to use power to demonstrate that he was from God, Philip was using power, the power of God, to heal and to cast out demons. To prove that he truly was from God, that his message was godly, that this was true. Now, Samaria is a very cosmopolitan city. It has lots of different influences, like we said. There was a man there by the name of Simon. Now, Simon was a sorcerer. He was balding, he was middle aged, and he had made a long living doing magic tricks. Any time that a priest or a visiting theologian would show up at their city, he would buy their powers from them. Priests did this all the time. They would go around and say, I am from the temple of Artemis, behold, and they would do some sort of magic trick to demonstrate to the people that they truly were from that God. And Simon had purchased many of these tricks. So many, in fact, that people said that he had the great power. They they beheld him. They said that he was an amazing man. They gave him respect and authority. They thought he was from the gods, whichever ones that happens to be. Now one day, Simon was on his way to the shrine where he normally did his magic tricks. And as he was walking, he was noticing a very large crowd moving outside of the city. And he smiled to himself thinking, ah, another priest has arrived. I'll be able to get something else in my repertoire. So he follows. And he heads on out. And as he's standing there, he sees a man who is preaching and teaching. He sees this guy who's talking about some other man named Jesus. And as he's trying to listen, he notices a man standing beside him. It's a crippled man who had a shriveled foot. And this man is standing there on crutches. And this man had come to Simon many times before, trying to buy a healing. And he'd never had enough money. So Simon just kind of stood back a little ways trying to stay out of eyesight of this guy, because he didn't want to talk to him. He wanted to see what was going on. But this this preacher was different. He wasn't standing commanding the audience. He wasn't standing getting everybody to, to throw money to him, or passing out a basket or anything like that. No, he was down amongst the crowd. He was moving around, talking to people individually. And eventually this guy by the name of Philip came all the way up, right where Simon was standing and this man that was crippled. And this crippled man begs Philip. He says, please, please, heal me. And Philip looks at him and says, I have no power to heal you, but I know of one who does. His name is Jesus. And he has the power to save you not only from this ailment, but to save you from your sins. He died so that you may be free from your sins. He rose to life and has conquered all of that, he has the power to save you, and he has healed you. And nobody was looking at the man's foot when Philip was talking because his eyes were so intense. But Simon glanced down, and to his astonishment, the man's foot was completely healed. He threw down his crutches, and he started praising God right then and there. And then somebody in the crowd knelt down and started worshipping Jesus, and then another person knelt down and started worshipping Jesus. And another, and another. And so overwhelmed with the message, so overwhelmed with the demonstration of power, Simon too knelt down and started worshiping Jesus right then and there. And so Simon started following Philip. He followed him around for weeks, learning everything that Philip taught. He learned about who Christ was. He learned about what Christ desired for people. He learned about about generosity. He learned about prayer. He learned about all these things that Jesus taught. And so did many other people. In fact, people were were getting baptized, and the crowds were becoming so large in Samaria that Peter and John, the the two biggest apostles that there were at the time, they headed up from Jerusalem to help establish the church there in Samaria. Now Simon watched and waited. He listened and learned. And when Peter and John were there, something different started to happen. See, Peter and John started teaching about the Holy Spirit, the next step in Christianity. And Peter and John were laying their hands on people and praying over them and allowing the Spirit to come into these other people. And Simon watched this And I think what happened is he went, aha, there it is, the source of the power. That's what it is. Remember, Simon had spent years buying power from other priests and preachers. He had spent years and made a whole living and a career out of having power. And yes, he understood who Jesus was, and yes, he was baptized, But he didn't let go of the things of his past. He started looking at the Holy Spirit as power. And so he went after a meeting was done. He went up to Peter and John, who were just wrapping up their clothes, finishing up as they dismissed everybody. And Simon kind of sidled up towards them and said, Would you please join me in the alleyway? All right, they thought. And they followed him out to a darkened corner, Simon leaned over into them and said, I can see that you are the keepers of this power. Could I please have it so that I can have a ministry like yours? And he reaches into his cloak and he pulls out a very large sack of money. You see, it wasn't cheap to get priests to give over their secrets. And as he hands the money to them, he's expecting some sort of shady shrug. He's expecting some sort of negotiation, but instead, Peter and John's gaze never leave his eyes. They have a stern expression on their face. And John simply shakes his head no. And Peter says, May your money perish with you. Why did you think you could buy the power of the Holy Spirit with money? You should pray to God right now that he will forgive give you for such a blasphemy as this. You should pray to God you will be forgiven. You have no part in this ministry. You cannot share in it because you are full of bitterness and you are still gripped by sin. Simon was shot. Never before had anyone told him that what he was doing was wrong. Never before had anybody told him that everything he believed about the way power worked, that everything he believed about God and gods, that everything he believed down in his inner being was completely wrong. And it shook him to his very core. And he dropped the money and he got down on his knees and he begged them. He said, please, please pray for me that this thing that you have said won't happen. You see, I think Simon really did want to know who Jesus was. I think Simon really did want to have the power of the Spirit in him. I think Simon really did want to have an intimate relationship with with the Lord. I think he wanted to worship for real. But he didn't know how to go about it. There's a description of an ailment that I think fits Simon quite well. You may have heard the expression anorexia nervosa. It's it's an eating disorder, disease. crazy thing about this disorder is that people think that they're grossly overweight, when in fact, they're starving themselves to death. And the thing about this disease is that it's life-threatening. It can happen to absolutely anybody. And the crazy part about it is that it's completely curable. I think Simon was a spiritual anorexic. He thought he understood what God wanted from him. He thought he understood who Jesus was. He even thought he understood the Holy Spirit. And yet, for all of his knowledge, for all of the food that he had been giving himself spiritually, he was starving to death. God desires intimacy with us. And may I ask you this question? Are you starving to death spiritually? When you come into a gathering like this and we sing songs and we pray, does something meaningful happen here? Do you feel like you've accomplished something in doing this? Do I feel like I've accomplished something? Have I given something to God? Or have I just been here? Are we spiritually anorexic? Intimacy happens with God out there. It's very hard to be intimate with someone when you're in a giant group, isn't it? Intimacy happens with God when we're alone with Him, when we've created space to be with Him. Intimacy happens when we're in prayer and reading Scripture. That's where intimacy happens. And prayer, prayer is the talking to God. Prayer is God re- returning the favor and talking to us. Prayer works both ways. Intimacy with God happens in our prayer lives. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you, if you haven't seen your life being transformed to be more like Christ daily, if being here on a Sunday doesn't really have some sort of meaning between you and God, I think James might have a solution to what's going on. Take a look at James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire what you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Sometimes we make our spiritual lives all about us, like Simon did. I need that power. I need to be the one with great power. Again, I want to be the one up front, passing on the Holy Spirit to other people. This is what he said. And so he was asking things with the wrong motives. We can do this too. The first question is, do you pray? The second question is, when you pray, what does it sound like? Do you pray all about yourself all the time? Is it always about you? What you need, what you want? And when you get what you want, if you get what you want, what do you do with it? You see, God, God desires intimacy with us, but He also desires His kingdom to be expanded. God pours out generosity to us, incredible generosity to us, so that we can take that and give it to other people. And in doing so, that's worship. That's showing that we put Him first before ourselves. That's worshiping God. And what James is saying is if you're praying for yourself, if you're All you want is things for you so that you can feel better about your life, so that you can sit on top of a huge pile of cash or a really nice house so that you can feel secure. That's the wrong motivation. God comes first. Remember, worship happens here. Science heart is full of bitterness and gripped by sin. That's what Peter said. And if you're not even praying, in 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel says that failure to pray is a sin. It's wrong. So do you want an abundant life in Christ? Do you want Sunday mornings to mean more than just coming and sitting for an hour? Do you want to experience that life that, that gets talked about in scripture over and over and over again? Do you want to know Jesus so well that you know Him intimately in here that nothing else on this earth can touch you because you're so secure in the knowledge and in the understanding of who He is in you. Then I have one suggestion. Pray. And I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself. We need to be people of prayer. We need to go to God with everything. And we can't have excuses. I know that prayer can be difficult. I know that you you are busy people, that I'm a busy person. I know that it's hard to find time to do things, but that is no excuse. What we must do is pray. And there are so many things that we can go to 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 help us with prayer. There are huge swaths of scripture that teach us how to pray. There are are aids written by godly people over and over and over again teaching us how to pray. Forms of prayer to help us organize and help us to, to structure our days around it. And if you need some help with that, please talk to us. Because I want you to experience the abundant life of Christ. I want you to have a rich prayer life. Later on in Scripture, in the book of Ephesians, Paul prays a prayer that is magnificent. And I'm pretty sure that Peter and John prayed something similar over Simon. And I want to read this for you right now. Paul, praying for this church, says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the saints to grasp how wide, how long, how deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in his church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever and then some more. That's a prayer prayed by a man who is not a spiritual anorexic. His desire is for others to know the intimacy of Christ, the way that he knows it. His desire is to see the power of the kingdom spread throughout all nations, throughout everywhere, at once. That everyone may know the immeasurable deepness of God. That is a prayer that is powerful. going they give you a little bit of hope? I know, it's rough. Go home today and pray Ephesians chapter 3 verses 16 to twenty-one. Pray it for someone you know. Pray it for yourself and then someone you know. Pray that people may know Christ. It is the most important thing Pray this enough, and I guarantee you, you're going to start seeing a change in your life. You're going to start seeing a transformation spiritually. Because these are the things that Christ desires for others. And when we pray about those things, transformation happens. Would you pray with me right now?